Thank you, Bill. I kind of gave Bill a marathon verse this morning because I'm planning on preaching as short as I possibly can. So in about 45 minutes, we'll be done with the sermon. Um, we have a special event happening after our service this morning. Uh, Chuck is going to remind you at the end of service to stay seated for just a little bit. Uh, but that said, I want to make sure that we get to the, the end of our service a little quicker than we usually will. And so I've chosen what is maybe the most theologically complicated parable in all of Scripture to cover in about 10 to 15 minutes. And so uh, hold on to your horses for just a second here. Um, the rich man and Lazarus. This is going to be the last in our series of parable lessons. Uh, we're moving on to the book of Deuteronomy last, uh, next week, and there's actually a, a good segue from if they won't listen, listen to Moses and the prophets, it doesn't matter whether or not someone raises from the dead, they're not going to be convinced. We're going to be spending a lot of time with Moses this summer. Jesus spent a lot of time with Moses, talking about the things that Moses talked about, sharing the things that concerned Moses. I mentioned as I announced the upcoming sermon series that there is no book in scripture that Jesus directly or indirectly references more often than the book of Deuteronomy. And sometimes we think, well, maybe it's, uh, you know, the Psalms, or uh, maybe it's, um, you know, the, the prophet Elijah, or maybe he's talking about the book of Isaiah. There's all these ways in which Jesus might be referencing someone or something. I'm telling you right now, there is no book in the Bible that Jesus references more often than the book of Deuteronomy. And I think when we read this particular parable, we see the emphasis that Jesus places on Moses. That in order to understand the things that Jesus says, Moses is a good frame of reference, a good position to go to and understand the heart of God, the heart of a shepherd, the heart of someone who will lead God's people. And in many ways, Moses is a Christ image in the Old Testament. Jesus, of course, is the only Christ, the one who has come to save us from our sins, to give us eternal life. But Jesus has Moses in pretty high regard. And so I want to tell you this morning that I think the key to understanding this parable is, is right there at the very end. You know, you could approach this parable, and there are a number of ways in which we might understand it. Uh, and my clicker's oh, turned off. There we go. Uh, there are a number of implications we might take away from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, so there is the question of how we treat the poor. This is probably the way in which we approach this text the most often. If you've heard 10 sermons on the story of the rich man and Lazarus, nine of those sermons have probably approached it from this position. There's also this question of what happens when we die. I actually sent uh, Kent an email a little bit ago about uh, what, what I believe about the afterlife, about what our experience post-death, immediately post-death, is like. And uh, I, I referenced this passage in here. I think there's a lot to be said about asking ourselves what happens when we die and then going to the only instance in which Jesus directly talks about it to a crowd of people about someone's experience of the post-death uh, life. And so we could approach it from that perspective. We could also talk about this idea of last chances. Well, you know, is it really fair that the, the rich man, now knowing what he knows, doesn't have the opportunity to cross the abyss? There's a lot of argument within the history of Christianity about what happens when we die and whether or not there are second chances after death. And in some ways, it kind of seems like Jesus 
sort of answers that question in this parable. These are all things that we could spend a lot of time unpacking. Each of these is like a 30 or 40 minute sermon. But I have something else I want to share with you this morning. As we've approached the parables, I hope that you've seen a theme arise about the importance and necessity of evangelism. All of the parables, in some way, shape, or form, deal with the urgency of the kingdom of heaven, that it is not some distant thing that we're waiting to have happen, but it's something that as Christians we participate in regularly, that the God of heaven, who is the king of heaven, has established a kingdom, and we are residents or citizens of that kingdom. Now, there is an eschatological, something coming towards the end, a thing we look forward to that is a full realization that is manifest in a way that it's not exactly manifest now, but that doesn't mean that the kingdom of heaven isn't a present reality for those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We've asked the question, what do we do in light of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is constantly saying these words, the kingdom of heaven is like. Go back to Matthew and read the parables in Matthew. The parables are used to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like, what its values, what its priorities are, what its mission is, the way in which the kingdom of heaven interacts with the lost. The parables implore us to see the kingdom of heaven as an evangelistic force. That there are those who need to have the word spread out to them. That the seed needs to be planted so that there might be a harvest to come. And Jesus is constantly telling us about how great it is for someone to find the kingdom of heaven or for the kingdom of heaven to find one lost soul. We just spent a lot of time talking about the lost things found and how the friends of those who find their lost things celebrate and rejoice with them. But there's something to be said about not just rejoicing after the thing has been lost and found, but participating in the finding. I had mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the parable of the lost coin, the idea that we are ministers of reconciliation. We have inherited the ministry of reconciliation from Christ. And the implication of that is that we are to draw the lost things back in. Reconciliation is actually a technical bookkeeping term. It's saying, I know the money we have, I know the money we thought we had, and they don't quite line up, and I need to figure out the math on why that is so that I can reconcile the books and say, this is why we have $100,000 and not $999,000.99. That one lost cent matters in reconciliation. And we've been given the mission, the ministry, the value of reconciliation. And I think, in many ways, this parable is a cautionary tale for our, our, our wringing of the hands about the lost. I want to be clear, I think we should mourn those who don't come to know Christ. It is a a sad realization that there are people who, no matter what happens, will never come to a faith that allows them to move from the side of the chasm that is agony 
into the rest of Abraham's bosom. This, I think, is the point that we need to take away this morning from this particular parable. I want you to hear these words. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. This is a brother pleading for his brothers who do not yet live in such a way that they will not end up in torment. Please send someone to convince them, to let them know that what we've heard about the afterlife, about the things that we will experience in our death, these are real things. I'm deeply concerned for the well-being of my brothers because I know now what it is. My eyes are open. My experience is real. Please, please send someone. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, this is now Father Abraham speaking, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I'm generally an optimist when it comes to my interactions and relationships with people. I like to think that, uh, that people are, are going to head in a progressively good direction for themselves, that uh, when they see the truth, that they will come to understand the truth, that they'll embrace the truth, and that then they will live in light of that truth. I, I think that's probably why I'm a minister. That's one of the things that I hope for people. And one of the things that I think God has instilled in me is a desire for people to know the truth and then be changed by the truth. Or as Jesus would say, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Because I think a lot of people live in slavery to a lot of mistruths that exist in our world. Mistruths, untruths, both, we're going to say. And this man here spent his life thinking it was all about the good things in this life. Filling your stomach, having a nice size house, having the, the poor sit outside your gate so you didn't have to deal with them, they couldn't sit on your doorstep, right? Uh, this was his idea of the good things, the good life, and he had not encountered yet the truth that convinced him otherwise. Or had he? Because the implication here is that this man had Moses and the prophets as well. If his brothers have Moses and the prophets, he had Moses and the prophets. If this man recognized Abraham on the other side of eternity, his brothers would recognize Abraham on the other side of eternity. And here's the deal. This guy didn't get it. He encountered the truth, and he didn't get it. It changed nothing for him. And so this morning, I, I, I'm, I don't have a particularly optimistic message for most of us. There are people that we will share the truth with who will not change in light of the truth. It's not because the truth has no power to change us, because if Jesus is the truth and the truth will set us free, Jesus is fully capable of changing who we are of making us more like the image of God that God intends for us. But there are people who, encountering the truth, will not change.
It's actually, to some extent or another, the, the thesis of the Gospel of John, which we're not dealing with this morning, so I'm not going to delve there because I've got to wrap up in like two minutes. The reality is, we have a commission to minister to those who do not know the truth. And the haunting reality is that no matter how many times we express the truth to them, the, the number of times we present to them, Moses and the prophets will say, they simply won't be convinced. And this little signature at the end that Jesus includes is important for us to recognize as well because we could say, you know, I get that presented with a bunch of prophecies and laws and stories about an ancient people, someone might not be convinced about the goodness of God for them in particular. I can understand all of that, but when I introduce them to the resurrected Jesus, they are going to believe and their life is going to be changed. And if not, it'll happen in 10 years. If not today, in 10 years, they'll change because the resurrected Jesus is the greatest news for any human being that has ever lived. How can it not change them? And Abraham says, I have some news for you. Even if someone should rise from the dead, they will not be convinced. This is a tension that we as Christians have to reconcile for ourselves. We have the best news for all of humanity, and there are some who will never be convinced by it. Jesus warns us of this. He tells us this in this parable. And so there's some sense in which we get to the end of this and we say, well, what is the, what is the point then of, of ministering to people who may never believe? And I want to point out it is the may that is the point. We don't know who will respond to the ministry that we have been given. We don't know who will or will not respond to the resurrected Jesus in such a way as to have their life changed. God hasn't given us the ability to look at someone and say, well, that person is a waste of time. They're a weed. I'm going to pull them up and throw them into the fire. In fact, early on in this series, we specifically said it is not our place to judge who or who will not make it into the kingdom of heaven to pick out the weeds from the wheat. That's not a task that God has given to us. What God has given to us is to be the ones who go and broadcast the good news, who throw out the net to pull in the fish, and God is going to do the sort in the end. And here's the deal. I, I think the most important thing we can take from this is an optimistic message. It may not op be optimistic overall. We mourn the loss of those who will never believe. But here's the optimistic reality. If we are doing the work that God has given to us, if we are caring for the poor, if we are going out and sharing the good news of the resurrected Christ, if we're teaching Moses and the prophets we're probably doing all right. We probably don't have to worry too much about what happens when we die. That big question of what, what happens when I close my eyes in this world for the last time. You, as a follower of Jesus, who has been confronted with Moses and the prophets and the resurrected Christ, have assurance. Wouldn't it be great 
if you could share that assurance with someone else. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you worried less about whether or not you were getting it all right and you recognized that you already had the things that God intended for you to have and you shared the good news with the people that you encountered, not knowing what they will do with it, but knowing what you've already done with it. That is good news for us. What are you doing with the knowledge of the resurrected Christ in your life? If you're already convinced, it's good news for you. The story of the rich man and Lazarus, you don't have to be worried about being in agony on the other side of the chasm. You've been given some assurance about what's happening to you when you close your eyes for the last time. Go share that good news with other people. Let God sort out what happens afterward. Let people decide what they're going to do themselves with the good news that you have to share with them. Because the truth is, you are not Moses. You are not the prophets. But the gospel says that you are someone who has risen from the dead. That you have participated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So while Jesus tells us even if someone rises from the dead, they aren't going to be convinced, it doesn't hurt to try. Be the resurrected individual that goes and shares the good news about what happens after this life. I went four minutes over the time I intended. Let's pray, and then we'll continue in our service this morning. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to be the kind of people you want us to be, that we would love our neighbors well, that we would recognize that it is not our job to make people love Jesus, but only to share with them the love that we have found for him. It is not our job to make people live out a life changed by the light of the truth, but Father, instead to live a life that is changed by the light of the truth so that others might, may, possibly come to believe in him. And we thank you for the assurance that we are given that our hope rests not in whether or not we've done the best job in this world, but only in the one who did do the best in this world. The perfect, pure, wonderful, glorious Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. We have some elders here who would be happy to pray with you. There are some ladies that would pray with you as well. We're going to continue our time of worship now.